We don't want to scare people away from using condoms. We want everybody to use a condom all the time. And if it happens to be a sustained condom, that's amazing. If you're in the consumer product space, the idea that you're going to reinvent the product to make it more sustainable, to make it healthier, is what consumers are demanding today. We built a movement and built a conversation and honestly, in sort of reflecting, built sort of the sexual wellness category. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. Together, Eva and I have built and invested in businesses worth millions. We want to show you how social impact can exist in a company's operations, product, and culture, sometimes unexpectedly. We hope you walk away knowing the possibilities of impact for you and feeling inspired by the potential to do good. This is the Beyond Capital Podcast. And today's guest is Mika Hollander. Mika is the founder and CEO of Sustain, a line of all-natural sexual wellness products. Mika is also on the board of Net Impact and is the author of Get on Top, a guide to reproductive and sexual health. Welcome, Mika. It's great to have you today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So I want to start with a simple question, which is that your journey led you to create the world's most sustainable condom. And I think that statement is probably illuminating for most who are listening. You know, what is a sustainable condom and how can that actually be? As an entryway into Sustain, the company that you founded and sold, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you got to that point in your career? Yeah, so... You know, I, unlike many, grew up really immersed in the world of natural products and socially responsible business. My dad started a company called Seventh Generation over 30 years ago. So in some ways, while it was unpredictable that I would end up starting a sustainable condom company, in fact, with my dad, you know, being in this space wasn't something, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, let's say. That being said, you know, coming out of college where I always expected that I would go work at seventh generation, uh, my dad actually said, no, you can't, you can't come work here. You need to go out in the world. You need to sort of figure out if this is really what you want to do, get some skills. And what ended up happening was, you know, my initial real interest in either working at a company like seventh generation or working in sustainability at a larger consumer company like Johnson and Johnson, where I spent time while I was in business school sort of didn't fulfill the itch that I had to make a really big impact every single day. And so that's kind of, you know, a couple different experiences coming out of college and going through business school led me to starting sustain because I really felt like I want to know sort of and measure, even though you can't all the time, like the impact I'm making on a daily basis and sort of feel the pulse of that. While I was in business school, my dad said he was, you know, think he had left seventh generation. He was thinking of starting another business. I was thinking of what I wanted to do, potentially starting a business. And so there we were two people at completely different points in our life and certainly careers deciding that, you know, 
this idea that he had had many, many decades prior around a sustainable condom company was actually the best idea we could think of. So was born sustain. <laughs> so is it's not biodegradable. It is not biodegradable. You wouldn't really want it to be biodegradable. Right. <laughs> well, that's what I was about. Saying. Yeah. So I'm happy to explain it, but yeah, it's not biodegradable and you actually can't sort of compost or, you know, repurpose any material that has come into contact with bodily fluids. So there are some nuances to what a sustainable condom means. I would love to know a little bit more about what it was like to start a company with your father before we dive into the enormity of the waste problem that I think surrounds the products that you created at Sustain. Yeah, sure. I, so I actually, you know, polled a bunch of people before getting into business with my dad and was told by pretty much everyone that it was a terrible idea. Family businesses challenging, you know, stressful and can end in bad places where people aren't talking. I'm very close with my family and my parents and my siblings. And so I was a little nervous about what I was getting into, but I really couldn't find anyone who had started something with a parent. I found a lot of people who had stepped into a family business and that came with a whole set of challenges. So, you know, I went into it with a little bit of hesitation and I, I also went into it, though, pretty excited to be getting to start something with someone who had built at that point, you know, four businesses successfully, had all of this experience in an area that I was incredibly passionate about. And what it ended up being like was, you know, it was hard. It was really hard. I was young, I think 26 at the time when we actually started the business. He'd been really successful. I was insecure. I'd never started a business before. I, you know, was proving myself to my dad or trying to, while also trying to prove myself to like the world and our investors and customers and all this other stuff. It was really hard. It took a lot of time and it sort of ended in this really beautiful place where sort of he was the one sort of leading things. Then we were leading things together. And then he actually stepped away, you know, a couple years in and handed me the rein. So looking back, it's this amazing experience where I got to learn a ton. We ended up in the end, I would say closer than ever, although there were definitely points throughout where we were not getting along so well, but it was hard. I mean, I think that's how I would explain it. It was really hard. Fun fact, my daughter, Lydia, works at Appreciate, which is my current startup. And How's that? We were a pretty small company when we started. Maybe we were four or five people when she joined. Now we're bigger than that. It was awesome, to be honest. Uh, you know, I grew up working at my dad's furniture store, delivering furniture, moving furniture, selling furniture, all that good stuff. And that was always a super positive experience for me. So when people would say to me that they thought family business was problematic, I understood because my uncles and who are also in the furniture business had issues with their kids and their and their businesses, serious issues. So it's kind of, you know, the outcomes be kind of binary there. But in our case, it's been really great, super special. And it's really fun to work with her. And I get to spend a lot of time with her, which is selfishly an awesome thing. Yeah, I it. It's hard and it is special. And I wouldn't say it if we were choosing, did it end good or bad? It ended, you know, good. And we're still really close. But we also worked on the relationship a lot throughout 
you know, our course of being, doing business together because we are both really committed to continuing a good relationship beyond sustain. Absolutely. That's really, really great to hear. I, I learned about you probably in 2017 when I invested in a women's health company in East Africa. And I think you had at one point been in connection with that CEO who we also previously had on the podcast in our last season, Joanna Bischel. And this, the kind of story she told me was similar. It was you started the company with your dad and I was really just intrigued by that. So I'm really glad that you were able to answer that question for us today. So um, getting back to Sustain and the problem you were looking to solve, what was that? And how did you think about the company's social and environmental impact? And how did it express in your, your strategy? So the problem that we actually set out to solve was one around sort of the stigmatization of women around sexual, sort of their sexuality. We, and I in particular, had become very passionate about women's reproductive health, access to reproductive health products, and then just this idea and the one that really, you know, sort of crystallized when it came to condoms was that we were living in a society where men who bought and used condoms were celebrated as heroes doing this incredibly responsible and noble thing. And women who did the same were slut shamed, criticized, you know, sort of like pariahs. Actually, when we started Sustain, women in New York City could be arrested on suspicion of prostitution and the condoms were used as evidence against them. That was crazy. And, and, the idea that we could start a brand and start a company selling a product like condoms, which, you know, we made the most sustainable condom in the world. And I'll get into that as sort of a vehicle to redefine, you know, female sexuality and create it as a sort of a movement to celebrate that versus shame women for it. The impact that we could have through safer sex, reducing unplanned pregnancy you know, making sure women are just proactive about their sexual health and celebrated for their sexuality. You know, there were these ripple effects around what we were doing. And sustainability in the sense of, you know, the environment and the materials and the ingredients in the products was always going to be core to the business. Because I believe, especially now, even more so than, you know, even seven years ago, that that's kind of table stakes. If you're in the consumer product space, the idea, maybe not as far as we took it, that you're going to reinvent the product to make it more sustainable, to make it healthier, is what consumers are demanding today. You know so much more about this than I do. It's ridiculous. Set me straight. But I, <laughs> I, I think that, like, so for women, you know, they have a pretty subtle option, which is like to take the pill. But that requires like that sort of like significant, you know, met, you know, medical changes to your body or whatever. And that if a woman sort of just is like packing a few condoms, that would be seen as like, whoa, why is this woman carrying these condoms around? That's a little bit weird. Is that what you mean? It's just sort of like there's more of a stigma to a woman having condoms than a guy like ready to go. Exactly. I think because right what does that, that mean? It means you're promiscuous. It means that you're having casual sex, God forbid. Right. Um, it, it, it doesn't, you don't think, oh, wait, she's taking care of her sexual health. She's being safe. She's right. being responsible. And why can't she just have sex with whoever she wants if she's being safe? Like, what's the problem with that? And, and it's, it's still an issue today for sure. 
but we were actually able to help move the number of single sexually active women using condoms regularly, you know, throughout the course of building the business. So yeah, it's a problem. And that was, you crystallized sort of what I was trying to say. Yeah. As a, as a young woman, I can, I can verify that too, that that certainly is the case, but um, I think your brand has, has changed culture and it's, it sounds like you set out to do that. So I, I definitely applaud you for taking that leap, which I'm sure came with its own criticism at times. Oh, I, it did. I mean, and it's easy to forget now. Like who was criticizing? What were they, what were they saying? Like, is it like the churches I, or the, like who, who was it that was Well, we did it? have, we had, we've had, we've had a lot of criticism. We've experienced a ton of criticism. I mean, you also have to remember we launched Sustain before the Women's March, the Me Too movement. I mean, I think all of the conversations that are happening now around gender equality, particularly around reproductive health and, you know, they're in a totally different place than they were five years ago for, you know, 10 years ago. When we started Sustain, I, you know, I have, you can see it actually, because we're on camera, but I have a pretty dark freckle on my lower lip and we got our, you know, we launched, we got our first piece of publicity and there was a big photo of my face with the freckle on my lower lip. And all of the comments on the article were talking about how I must have an STD. And so who am I to start a condom company? What? Yeah. Terrible. I mean, I I was being sort of slut shamed all over the internet and I hadn't, I was so nervous about launching the business and if the business was going to work and the products were going to sell, I wasn't thinking about, oh, great. Now I'm sort of a face of a movement and I'm personally going to be criticized about what I'm trying to do just because I'm a woman. Yeah, other than the you know, obvious horrifying aspect of that, it's kind of a good sign from a business standpoint because it's like if that's all you got you know, against me, I know you've got a pretty weak argument. You know, yeah, but, there were some emotional calls to my mom about like, <laughs> should I go to the dermatologist and get my lip freckle removed? But no. those subsided after about three minutes. I didn't even notice it, but yeah, it's just, it's it's normal, and there are no shortage of trolls on the internet, so it's unfortunate. But yeah. um, where where for me this sure. gets really exciting is that you have the social impact in changing the conversation about gender and sexuality and then you have the environmental impact and i know that that's like almost part of your dna with your father starting seventh generation i would love if you could tell us a little bit more about how you set out to use fair trade become a b corporation and use all of the tools available to you that you learned over the years uh, also with your two degrees to make environmentally friendly products because We've had, you know, others on on this podcast that have described to us, particularly in the women's health category and the feminine sanitation category, how wasteful those products mm-hmm. can actually be. And I know that that it is the same, certainly for condoms as well. Yeah. So one big attraction to the condom sort of as this product and like our hero product was that we had done a lot of research and learned around sort of the deforestation happening from rubber plantations and just sort of learned about so latex our condoms are natural latex latex is the sap of the rubber tree so just like you would go tap a tree for maple a maple tree for maple syrup you go to a rubber plantation and you tap the rubber tree 
without doing any harm to the tree and sort of the liquid latex comes out and then we heat and mold it into condoms. Rubber plantations and the rubber industry sort of similarly to the garment industry and electronics industry, like as you peel back the layers to the onion of like how the product's actually getting made, you learn a lot more bad news than good news. And the rubber industry is filled with child labor and tons of harsh, you know, pesticides being used on these plantations. And we were able to find the only rubber plantation in the world that makes latex for condoms that's fair trade certified. No children working on the plantation. Everyone's being paid a fair wage. There's a hospital right next to the plantation that all of our rubber tappers have free access to. There's a school for their kids. You know, it's, it's a very different. I mean, we went all over the world and looked at a bunch of different rubber plantations. This one stood out sort of in a massive way. So that's sort of step one is just sourcing the latex from, you know, a fair trade plantation. The other, and I would say in some ways bigger and more challenging piece of this puzzle was when you heat and mold any latex into sort of from liquid to solid, a chemical reaction occurs and nitrosamines, which are a known carcinogen, form in the latex. When the latex comes into contact with bodily fluid, the nitrosamines get released from the latex. So you can connect the dots of... (laughs) what types of products we make, condoms. And this is an issue. This is an issue with pacifiers. This is an issue with any latex product that's coming into contact with bodily fluid. So we actually had to find someone who had worked in the condom space for, you know, a couple decades who had come up with a process to prevent the nitrosamines from forming in the latex when we were heating and molding it. That was another big development in terms of our products. We did other things. Yeah, it's... It's very detailed, but it's very important because, you know, and it's a sensitive issue. It's especially with in the natural products industry. I think there's been a lot of fear based marketing over the years in terms of education to scare people away from using certain products, using certain household cleaners, eating certain types of food. This one's a little bit different. We don't want to scare people away from using condoms. We want everybody to use a condom all the time. And if it happens to be, a sustained condom, that's amazing. But we certainly never wanted to go out there and start telling people that there were carcinogens in condoms. I mean, that's not, you know, that's a really delicate message. So yeah, that was a huge thing. We did a lot of other, you know, like our plantations, fair trade certified for stewardship council certified. We did other things in the formulation of the condoms to make them less likely to cause irritation for women. That's a huge issue and reason that women state for not using condoms. But yeah, that's that's sort of the nuts and bolts of how we put our condoms together. So so women generally don't know that condoms cause them irritation, regular condoms? They don't know that or do they know that? They do know that. I mean, I think a lot of women and we did a lot of research, obviously, around condom usage and say the reason they don't like to use condoms is because they cause irritation and that's uncomfortable. So is it because of the protein level in the latex? Usually, is it because there's spermicide or other fragrances in there that's, you know, there's other additives that can cause irritation, but it's a common reason that women express as to why they don't use condoms. 
Thank you. This is fascinating. I did not know that. There's a lot to learn here. I absolutely would would say so. We have not yet touched on the fact that Sustain was acquired by the Grove Collective in 2019. What was that like for you? Even reflecting back, you know, we're in 2021 now. What has it been like since that acquisition? You sold yeah, your baby. I mean- you sold your baby. <laughs> I did. I've sold my baby too. I sold my baby too. I mean, obviously reflecting back post 2020 is even a more intense reflection because I did not have to run a business through, you know, this pandemic. And I think that's been very challenging for a lot of people. And I'm seeing it obviously as being part of Grove, you know, I'm still running Sustain. I'm still working there, but it's a totally different experience than if Sustain was independent last year. So, Well, and the condom business must be down. The condom business is kind of stable, but... The it's not as down as you would think. Oh, really? Oh, okay. A lot. That's encouraging. Most people, most people who use condoms are actually not single people. They're oh. people who are married or in serious relationships, and they're using it as their main form of birth control, which is one of the whole problems that we're trying to solve, right? Like, okay, single okay. people need to be using condoms. Okay, okay. Let's get um, back to let's get back to selling the company. I was, I'm sorry, I was just like, because you, you know, would think that- everybody thinks that condoms is a single person's game, but it's actually not. I apparently um, me too. Yeah. I'm just like the rest of the knuckleheads out there. Thanks for setting us <laughs> straight. So I had an interesting experience because we sold through a fundraise. We sold the majority of the business prior to our full exit to Grove Collaborative in 2019. So I had a little over a year where we were still an independent company. I was running the business but a larger company had invested and taken our entire series A and controlled the board. And so this idea of selling my baby was kind of in two parts, which was, you know, you split your baby in two parts. Sorry. I dragged the pain out (laughs) over. So I had, so I, you know, I think I, I processed a lot of what entrepreneurs go through in totally giving up control over a longer period of time. I have been so lucky, you know, I think, and kind of, I know, because I went through this a little bit earlier before we sold the whole business with Grove in that up until recently, the idea for a consumer products company that you were going to sell meant you're selling to a big CPG that's been around for a hundred years that is corporate and does things their own way and is the antithesis of a, you know, activist startup (laughs) that's sort of like try, you know, it's just totally different. So I think what was really cool for, for me and for the team and for the brand was that we got to sell the business to a company like Grove that's, you know, started a couple years before us is direct to consumer first is, only selling natural products and making natural products and the values alignment, you know, couldn't have been better at least around sustainability in particular, and even just around sort of like being a mission driven company. So I've been really lucky. I've been able to do the things that I love doing, like doing this right now, just educating, speaking, talking. I've been able to take 
the brand building sort of nuts and bolts, which I did, I think, you know, that was one of our strengths at Sustain and bring that to Grove and teach that a little bit to Grove who have not been traditionally very strong on sort of like brand building from a marketing perspective. And I also just have had a chance to sort of, I mean, I just had my first kid four and a half months ago. Um, something that I'm not sure I would have had frankly time to do while running Sustain. And so I've just had a, you know, I've, listen, I still have to remind myself, almost every day that like, this was a choice I made. I had a great experience building sustain. I worked, you know, 12 hours a day for a very long time. And that was unsustainable at a certain point. And I found a really nice home for the brand. I have to remind myself that I made these choices and that the side of me, that's like, I want to go back to hundred miles an hour. I want to go back to sort of like building and figuring things out and breaking things and putting them back together and you know, all that stuff. Like I will go back to that. I'm sure at some point, but that's not what I'm doing right now. And I think that's been the hardest part has just been obviously giving up control. Although Grove has been really amazing at through the integration and ongoing sort of allowing me to be the key stakeholder on the brand and just like life change, like huge life change work was my entire life for a very long time. And now it's not my whole life, but there's something really cool about that. Congrats on the birth of your first child. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. So no, thank you for the second child. Oh, sorry. Your second child. I'm so (laughs) sorry. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. It is my first child, but I'm kidding. We've been referring to your baby. Yeah, yeah, your second. Exactly. Don't split this one. My first, yeah, your human, first child. human child. So I'm not planning <laughs> on selling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one you can't exactly. Sell. So I would love to get into our rapid fire questions. And I think your your response was was a perfect precursor to these questions because we got to know you a little bit more personally in your response to the last question. And this will help us go even deeper. So kicking it off and Ed will contribute as well. What book is on your nightstand right now? That'll be Bringing Up Bebe, which is a French parenting oh. book. <laughs> it's a great book. We can talk offline about that. I read that what? years ago. Oh, okay. Is it? I've never read that one. <laughs> what, what is your go-to beverage in the morning? Coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Coffee. Are you like a Starbucks? Like you got to go get your special grande double cap? Half calf. No, I'm like the person like so many that have now gotten like I'm back to basics of like coffee machine, you know, setting it the night before almond milk, like never going out for coffee. Pandemic life is like definitely uprooted my coffee routine. (laughs) Changing habits for sure. Name something that is giving you hope right now. My son. That's great. What is one trend you're watching in your industry? I guess it's still kind of offline to online. I've been following pretty closely how dramatic of a shift that's happened there over the last 12 months. Oh, just like the shift to e-commerce. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's an on a long time trend, but I especially, you know, sustain plus now being part of Grove, which is all e-commerce. It's been a pretty intense, you know, flex up into online in the last year. Been really interesting. My previous business was all e-commerce platform. We had all kinds of brands that we served 800 brands in America and branded manufacturers. Then now it's just exploding. So yeah, totally exploding. Do you have a favorite resource for staying up to date on current events for your industry, whether a podcast or a website or a newsletter? 
I'm a religious reader of the broadsheet, which Fortune puts out every day, which is all about women in business. Okay. And then what is your favorite way to unwind? Epsom salt bath. That's old school. I know. I I have like the like huge bag from like the pharmacy that, you know, looks like my husband's like, why are you putting salt that you would put in the driveway? (laughs) Cause that's what it looks like. (laughs) When I was growing up, we had like a, like a milk carton full of Epsom salt. Yeah. It kind of hard at the bottom and you'd have to kind of like smash it a little bit to put it in. My mom used to make me do that when I had like a sprained ankle. Yes. Every day. Why that helps. Why does that help a sprained ankle though? It helps. Relieves it's like inflammation. Re- yeah, relieves inflammation it does? in your body. What? Oh, wow. Okay, forget that. We'll, I'll Google it after. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the thing to do. I think. Um, is it? Is it a trend for, right now? For well, baths. Bath is a new category. There are definitely a lot more like bath salts that are coming on the market. But Eps- the good old Epsom salt bath, I think, is also gaining steam, especially during the time where we're all home more often. Yes. Bath culture is very big right now. Okay. I'm taking a few notes here. Stop at CVS on the way home. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You can also order it on Amazon. Or I could just go to Lush. Mika, what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Reflect, don't react. That's a great one. Perfect. I want to wrap up the interview by kind of rounding out some of the other initiatives and projects that you've had around your brand. As actually a a venture capitalist who has a larger brand around her fund, I think sometimes the old school way of business doesn't always understand how that is, it can be important or or how the dots can really connect. And I know you have, you started something called the 10% for Women Initiative. You also wrote the book, Get on Top. What really was behind, you know, launching more of a movement behind your brand and, and, you know, was that accretive to value uh, also when you sold it? I'm really curious if, if, you know, you don't have to speak in numbers, but if you could tell us that side of how it really, you know, helped you when you sold the business. Yeah, it, it tremendously is the short answer. I think the ability to make a really great product is not It's not easy, but it's not something that a lot of people can't figure out, right? You can find the right person. You can hire the right, you know, manufacturer. You can, you can piece it together. And, you know, we did put a lot of time and energy into creating our products, particularly our condoms, but what was unique to our business. And ultimately the reason, you know, we got acquired was because of what you're talking about, because we built a movement and built a conversation and honestly in sort of reflecting built sort of the sexual wellness category. I mean, the the term sexual wellness didn't exist when we were getting started. That was very valuable. That was something that I think made us very unique from what at the has become a crowded category of sort of period and sexual wellness brands that are all direct to consumer. What we stood out and why, you know, what we stood out was because of the movement was because we were an activist brand. We were outspoken. We were taking on issues that all laddered back to destigmatizing female sexuality. And I think The other piece of that was, you know, I sort of gravitated towards and became sort of a voice of the movement and lended myself not just 
to building the business, but as an expert and sort of driver of different issues, which ultimately benefited the business. And that's, you know, that's not a decision that every founder makes. It's time consuming. You have to be passionate about it. It doesn't make sense necessarily for every business, but it was what I was passionate about. It's what I felt like I was good at doing. And I I did feel as we, you know, through the acquisition that it benefited the business because we were seen as a real pioneer in this category, not just another sort of like subscription, direct-to-consumer women's health company, which there are many of now, I will say, which is great, but you need to do something to stand out. So if you would rate like zero to 10, the state of the stigmatization of women's reproductive health or sexuality and say that that was, you know, I don't know, a zero or a one when you started, where would you rank it now? Is it a two or three or is it a five? Are we, you know, where are we on the I, for just from your opinion, you know, not not data driven necessarily. No, but yeah. Like, where are we sure. on the journey? Are we, you know, we barely started, or are we, you know, are we should we feel good about where where we've gotten to? I think when we started, and the example I like to give is that we publicly supported Planned Parenthood and sort of gave a percentage of our sales to Planned Parenthood from day one. That was one of the top three reasons in 2014 when we launched that we got inquiries from customers. They were very upset that we were connected to them, that we were giving them money. They said they will never purchase from us again. So I think we were at maybe 10, 10 in 2014. I think today we're more at like a six or seven. Is it Do we still have really, really deep rooted fundamental issues around supporting women's sexual and reproductive health and creating access to it across so many different issues. I mean, I was just reading something this morning about pregnant and lactating women and the vaccine and how we've never included women of childbearing age that are pregnant in these, you know, medical trials. Like this is a whole huge problem. You know, this is creating potentially a big problem from a huge part of the population, but oh, well, we're not going to focus on that. So yeah. That's that's a long answer, but I think we've gotten better. I mean, I really think as traumatic for me in the space that I'm in that the Trump presidency was, he mobilized and ignited a huge fire around these issues and around every woman feeling like they needed to speak up, they needed to share their story, they had a voice and they needed to use it which before he was in office, my experience in the space was that, eh, not really going to talk about sex. Eh, not really going to talk about my abortion. Mm, not really going to talk about the time I was, you know, harassed at work. What good is that going to do me? I think we've made a lot of progress. I think there's a lot of huge boulders to climb or build or move or whatever we want to say uh, going forward. But I think the last four-ish plus years have been monumental. That's really encouraging. Thank you. And you brought up some really, really good points in in that response, absolutely, about thinking about potential mothers, new mothers, mothers, you know, maybe having additional children with the COVID vaccine rollout. It's definitely been on my mind as I think a lot about maternal health after my my two past pregnancies. So before we let you go, I just, since you are so, so deeply in this industry, I would love to know how you think the broader sexual wellness industry should change to, you know, help women and and frankly, 
society at large for the better going forward, maybe looking out five to 10 years? As I was sort of saying in the beginning, I think there is a lot of great work that's already been done around, you know, this notion of what's in your tampon, what's in your lube, what's in your condom, like the ingredient conversation and product development has been huge in the last 10 years when it comes to these products. And I think we need these companies to become more activists and and in their nature, because we have so much work to do outside of just switching people from, you know, a synthetic tampon to an organic cotton tampon. I think there's still a huge focus on ingredients in the space, which is super important, but I think we need to sort of, you know, we're seeing other industries that are getting into how can I, as a business that is a leader in this category, you know, actually change, not just the products, but sort of the rules of the game and the policies around the space. And I think we just need more of that in this category, probably more so than others, because it is such a taboo area of policy and such an area that has, you know, is so far behind. So I think just more activism, more collaboration, and sort of moving beyond the pure sort of ingredient sustainability product-based marketing and sort of development work. Thank you for that. If I could connect the dots, you know, I see you as a purpose-driven leader, but a conscious leader who also thinks about all stakeholders and all tools, as kind of mentioned in the beginning of the interview, including not just like how can your business have the impact, but how can you also use your business as a platform for activism? And I love the kind of activist business thinking and the activist brand aspect of this interview. So Mika, it has been an absolute pleasure. I hope we can meet in person one day and wishing you all the best in 2021 and beyond. I I think it's really exciting to follow your story and see the additional impact that you're having. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining. It's been super interesting and you know, we want to get the story out there and continue to move that dial. Great. Thank you. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.